ASN Kidney Week 2015 in San Diego featured multiple late-breaking clinical trials with new insights into acute kidney injury, interventional nephrology, transplantation, and other areas in nephrology. In this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast, Dr. Linda Sezik and Dr. Pradeep Kadabi discuss several of the most important studies presented at this year's high-impact clinical trial session. Hi, this is Pradeep Kadambi here. Uh, I'm an associate professor of medicine at the University of Arizona, and I went to the Kidney Week this year, and the meeting was fantastic, and I'm very excited that there are a lot of great things happening in the field of nephrology. So I want to discuss a few things that were presented at the meeting, and I also have my colleague here, Dr. Sezek. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Linda Sezek. I am a nephrologist with the Durham Nephrology Associates, and I have some wonderful studies to discuss at this podcast also. So, Kadeep, I'll, I'll flip to you for the first question. Sure. Linda, I should say that, uh, you know, over the past decade, we have tried a lot of techniques and medications to prevent acute kidney injury. However, the good thing is there is still robust research activity in this area, And I want to discuss two studies that looked at prevention of acute kidney injury. The first one was use of high-dose atorvastatin and acute kidney injury following cardiac surgery by Dr. Billings and colleagues. The main idea behind the study is that statins increase the endothelial nitric oxide synthetase expression and thus improving tissue perfusion. And also, they limit the production of reactive oxygen species. So this study enrolled a good number of patients, and they stratified by chronic kidney disease to atorvastatin or matching placebo group. The primary endpoint of this trial was acute kidney injury, as defined by that of the acute kidney injury network criteria. When they looked at the study, there was no difference in the incidence of acute kidney injury in both groups, and also the side effects such as myalgias, the levels of creatine kinase and liver enzymes were similar between the groups. But what happened was the investigators had to stop the study on the recommendation of the Data and Safety Monitoring Board after the second interim analysis. This is mainly because of an increased risk of acute kidney injury in chronic kidney disease patients who had never received statins previously. Isn't that interesting? Here is a summary of the primary findings of the study. Number one, high-dose perioperative atorvastatin did not reduce the incidence or severity of acute kidney injury following cardiac surgery. Number two, among the pre-study statin users, there was no evidence that perioperative statin continuation or withdrawal affected postoperative acute kidney injury. And finally, among patients who were naive to statins, High-dose perioperative atorvastatin increased serum concentrations of creatinine, and there was evidence that statin treatment increases acute kidney injury among statin-naive patients with baseline chronic kidney disease. However, I think we need to be a little cautious here. We can definitely get carried away with some of these studies. The one thing I would like to point out was it is critical to know that while statins did not work for this focused area of research, the other beneficial effects of statins still remain. Hence, we should not generalize this effect to other areas of nephrology. So what do you think about this study, Linda? 
You know, I always think about this from the patient perspective, and we're so focused on raising awareness about chronic kidney disease. I worry about how this message will be conveyed to patients about acute kidney injury. That is yet another public awareness campaign that we have yet to really tackle and tackle well as a renal community. So I want to put that out there for everybody to sort of think about. How do you talk about acute kidney injury to your patients? I want to pat everybody on the back that is involved in this research because I think that we have come over the last 10 years such a long way in perfecting how we do studies in this area. You think back to the calcium channel blocker days with contrast nephropathy. We have really raised studying acute kidney injury to an art form. And now we just have to find the right pharmaceutical agent that really attacks probably the ischemia reperfusion model that we need to make a difference in acute kidney injury. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, uh, you make wonderful points. And if you really want to think about art form of studies, here is the second study. The second study by Dr. Gargan colleague was looking at the effect of methylprednisolone on acute kidney injury in patients undergoing cardiac surgery with cardiopulmonary bypass. This is a subset of the steroids in cardiac surgery. It's also called as the SIRS trial. That's the acronym. Once again, the idea here is that cardiopulmonary bypass initiates a systemic inflammatory response syndrome, and steroids could potentially suppress this response and prevent acute kidney injury. In fact, there was actually another trial called the DEX trial, which is dexamethasone for cardiac surgery from the Netherlands, and they randomized 4,500 patients. And this study revealed that steroids may have a role in preventing acute kidney injury following cardiac surgery. So here is the impressive part. This study had 7,000 patients from 79 centers in 18 countries. Isn't that amazing as to how they've converted this into an art form as to how to perform these studies? Absolutely. We're almost becoming cardiologists, aren't we? Exactly. (laughs) Patients were randomized to receive either methylprednisolone, 250 milligrams at anesthesia induction, and 250 milligrams at initiation of cardiopulmonary bypass, or they received a matching placebo. The primary acute kidney injury outcome was an increase in the serum creatinine from the preoperative value of more than or equal to 0.3 milligrams per deciliter, or 50% increase within 14 days of surgery. When they looked at the risk of acute kidney injury at 14 days following surgery, or new initiation of dialysis within 30 days after surgery, there was no difference between the two groups. Even in patients who had preoperative chronic kidney disease, and remember, these are patients with estimated glomerular filtration rate of less than 60 mL per minute, steroids showed no benefit. This study reiterated that steroids in the perioperative period may not alter the risk of acute kidney injury in patients undergoing cardiac surgery with cardiopulmonary bypass. So again, uh, this was another trial which didn't show a difference in patients who received steroids. So Linda, what, what do you think of the results of this study? You know, negative trials have as much value as positive trials in my mind. I remember back, and I'm going to date myself, to learning about the internal mammary artery ligation 
that it was the treatment for coronary artery genosis back in the day. And when I went through mm-hmm. medical school, we learned about the brave people that put forth effort to test internal mammary artery ligation against no procedure and showed that it didn't improve coronary artery flow. And that's what led to bypass grafting because people figured out, hey, this doesn't work, let's find something else. So I applaud these two groups of investigators and am so happy that we can now move on to getting to different agents that could affect acute kidney injury. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is the coolest part that we we never stop and we just keep moving. So I think one of the things that's been uh, within our own community is the number of randomized clinical trials in nephrology has been very low, or as you know, over the past several decades. So I'm hoping that all these things uh, will create a robust environment for um, increased number of clinical trials. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so happy for our patients. So now to transition to um, two studies that are about complications of what happens after your kidneys fail. One is about something that we all know about, but we don't think about all that much, and maybe we should, and that, I think, spoiler alert, is going to be my take-home message. And one is about something similar to what you were talking about, Pradeep, um, a very common complication where the modality, the pharmaceutical tested, didn't quite make a difference, and it needs to motivate us to keep looking. So the first is, um, just to read the title, Randomized Double-Blind Placebo-Controlled Parallel Three-Arm Study of Safety and Antipyritic Efficacy of Nalbuvine ER Tablet in Hemodialysis Patients with Uremic Baritis. That pretty much says it, um, yeah. although I will go into a little more detail. And this was presented by a longtime friend and colleague, uh, Vandana Mather, on behalf of the sponsoring company, Trevi Therapeutics. And to hit the highlight of the design, uh, this study looked at patients with incredibly severe pruritus related to ESRD. They studied 373 dialysis patients on hemo at 40 sites. And I think those numbers are important because the severity of the pruritus that they enrolled was tremendous. These were patients that couldn't sleep because of the itching. They had scratch marks on their backs because they were itching so much. This is really severe pruritus, and it just shocks me that you could get 373 patients out of only 40 sites. You know, that's roughly 9 to 10 patients per site. And to think about the dialysis center that I round in, that there are nine patients that I didn't know couldn't sleep because of their itching or had scratch marks on their back means that I think I need to be asking this question a whole lot more frequently. Right. No, that's actually one of the things that I was thinking. How many times do we even take the time to ask some of the symptoms patients are experiencing? I had the same thought in my mind. Wow. It really is striking. So the treatment that was tested was nalbutene, 120 milligrams twice a day, the study drug, 60 milligrams twice a day versus placebo. So it was a bit of a dose-finding study with a placebo control. They treated patients for roughly eight weeks and then followed them for six months on an open-label extension. 
and they measured the amount of itching they were doing based on numerical rating scales, which I won't get into for the purposes of this podcast, but are available with the main presentation, and we can direct people to those um, if they're interested in slightly more information. So they randomized 373 patients. And the patients that they randomized to were really very reflective of our underlying population. You think about pruritus as being something that, well, the people that have been on dialysis for a long time have had. But while the mean dialysis duration was about five years or a little less across all the treatment arms, the standard deviation was about four years. So there were people that had just started dialysis or at least started within the last year who had the severe pruritus, as well as our longtime dialysis survivors. Half were diabetic. Um, the mean age was about 55. So really broadly reflective of the population that we treat. The study drug, the active drug, reduced the amount of itching using this itch intensity scale in a statistically significant way in the higher arm group. The middle arm group, 60 BID or the low dose group, wasn't statistically significant as compared to placebo. But as you look at the decrements in itch intensity across groups, there was a nice trend. So the decrement in itch intensity in placebo was 2.8 units. So simply thinking that you could get a benefit obviously did give you a benefit. And that's important to know when we're looking at therapeutics for intervening on this particular condition. The low-dose study drug group at 60 milligrams twice a day had a decrement of 3.1 units, and the higher dose had a decrement of 3.5 units. And that higher dose at 3.5 was statistically significant. As you look at other endpoints that they monitored, the use of other antipyretics went down in both study drug arms. So the extent to which you treat blood pressure, for example, and you lower blood pressure a little bit, but you're able to get off other drugs that you may not like, like clonidine with you know other side effects, Mm -hmm. needs to be taken into consideration when one is looking at this literature in general. And that was kind of a nice feature, is that they were able to, on the active study drug, get off of other antipyritics in the two arms. In terms of quality of life, I think that with anemia and a number of different other areas where we're doing research and how it affects quality of life, we find ourselves in, you know, a, a bit of a sticky situation with patients with multiple comorbidities and multiple things that are affecting their quality of life about how easy it is to really understand if you're improving quality of life. So the quality of life data are, to take that caveat aside, they're not statistically significant except for one area of better sleep in the higher dose study drug arm. So whether that is failure to find a difference or inability to find a difference with the current metrics, hard to say, but I think that we all know that quality of life is really tough to examine in our population. In terms of safety, as one would expect, a drug like nalbutene really does have some side effects in that it is part of the opioid family, and there was a greater incidence of nausea vomiting, somnolence, things that one would expect when um, one's taking a, an opioid derivative in both active arms as compared to placebo. 
So in general, I think what we take away from this is that there are signs that this could be an effective therapy for a severe and unrecognized condition. I would encourage people as they listen to this podcast to perhaps just take that first step and start asking patients if this is something that bothers them. And then we as a renal community can explore this literature together and perhaps come to a better treatment plan and a toolbox of potential options that could help our patients. This particular drug in this study suggests that this could be in the toolbox, but we'd have to look at the efficacy that was offered compared to the safety um, adverse events that were noted to really sort of find the balance about who this could be used in and how it should be augmented with other therapies. Um, Pradeep, do you have any other thoughts about this delicate balance between safety and efficacy? I think, Linda, that was fantastic. When I was listening to what you were saying, I actually also went back and asked my own patients specifically about this question, and it was just eye-opening to me that sometimes, um, you know, when we spend time with patients, they may have other things that on their mind that this may actually not be their priority for that particular visit. But uh, when I asked them this question, almost all of them did mention that itching is one of the effects that they face. Also, you know, we've actually given them many other types of medications which perhaps didn't relieve uh, their symptoms as much. So I think there may be definitely um, a sort of unmet need with this medication. And uh, you're right. I need to. I think we need to figure out as to which patients would benefit the most with this type of drug. So thank you for that. Well, the, the other trial that I just wanted to summarize briefly was one on, uh, unfortunately, a complication that we are all too aware of, that we really have yet to find something that I think we feel even semi-comfortable that truly affects the burden of the problem, and that's vascular access outcomes, specifically fistula maturation and usage. So the trial is titled Fish Oils and Aspirin in Vascular Access Outcomes in Renal Disease. And the acronym that the that Ashley Irish came up with was favored for fish oil and aspirins in vascular access outcomes in renal disease. It, you know, I, I love these positive acronyms, and that one is really beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Um, we I, I don't need to go into the problems with vascular access and fistula maturation. I think that we are all so painfully aware. This group studied the effect of fish oil primarily and then aspirin in a subgroup because of all of the good things that both can do to endothelial cell function. Um, They have a a wonderful preamble to their presentation about the anti-inflammatory effects, the antiplatelet effects, the um, inhibition of smooth muscle cell proliferation that really sets you up to think, okay, we got this, guys. We're going to make these fistulas mature and last forever. Um, They randomized patients to 12 weeks of fish oil at two different doses or to placebo, and then a subgroup of them went on um, either aspirin or matching placebo. So it was kind of like a two-by-two, but not really because only a subgroup were randomized to the aspirin. The primary outcome after fistula placement was very simple and very practical. At 12 months, did the access work? Was the fistula in use? 
So stated the other way, did any of the following events as a composite happen? Had it been clotted, had it been abandoned, or had it been not able to be successfully cannulated on a regular basis? So it, it really is a very practical outcome. Is it work and is it working reliably and regularly? They randomized a total of 567 patients. And the first question is, do the patients look like the patients were dialyzing? And the answer is yes. But unfortunately, they didn't see any benefit. When comparing the fish oil arms to placebo, about 47% of patients experienced one of those composite events, that it had been abandoned, um, it had clotted, et cetera. And it was equal in both arms. So when they looked at aspirin, did they find a difference? Unfortunately not. Um, 45% of those who received aspirin and 43% of those who didn't receive aspirin also had a failed fistula. In terms of adverse events, there was really nothing striking. So when we talk about use of fish oil or aspirin for other indications in dialysis patients, which is a whole other Pandora's box of uh, interesting and controversial literature, um, there was nothing about this study that supported a safety risk. But unfortunately, it didn't really support an efficacy benefit. And I think that we find ourselves in a place where we have figured out how to study the beast, and that's a win. We should all be very happy about knowing how to study the beast. But we just have to figure out what club to use to beat the beast down. And that's where, you know, our continued persistence is going to really prevail. Pretty, do you have any comments about this? Because I can I can go on and on about my thoughts, uh, but I'd love to hear yours. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think uh, you, know, you you hit the, the nail on the head, so to speak. So if you look at vascular access interventions, I think uh, the same thing can be, uh, this is sort of a very similar theme when we compare this to acute kidney injury, that uh, we've been at it for a while, and we still haven't found the right agent or the right technique, etc. But I think you're right. This actually keeps us going. So I'm hopeful that with our persistence of our community that uh, we can find the right solution for our patients so that uh, we can all have great outcomes eventually. Now the thing, it always seems in my mind to come back to early awareness of kidney disease that if we can figure out how to get patients before they start dialysis, aware of their kidney disease, aware of their options, we can do more research because we'll have more people that are in a position where they have the time to choose hemodialysis, to, to see if a fistula is an option. And then we can start thinking outside the box about other potential pharmaceutical or device agents that could make this problem go away. Absolutely. I mean, I'm in complete agreement with you. I think also we all need to do a better job of educating the community and the primary care physicians about early CKD detection. So if you're able to detect uh, chronic kidney disease earlier, we can also look at ways to slow the progression of chronic kidney disease so that uh, we can postpone some of these events by many years. Hey, Doc, how are my kidneys, right? There you go. All right. Well, let me throw it back to you for our final trial of this podcast. 
Okay, so this is about kidney transplantation, so we're shifting gears a little bit. One of the things that we know is that the risk of bone disease in kidney transplantation is quite frequent. And also 20% of these patients may suffer a fracture within five years after kidney transplantation. So this current study is called the Prevention of Bone Density Loss in De Novo Kidney Transplant Recipients with Twice Yearly Denosumab looks at this very issue. As you know, this drug has been approved for the treatment in postmenopausal women who are at risk for osteoporosis. This drug inhibits osteoclast-mediated bone resorption and is highly effective in increasing the bone mineral density and decreasing fracture rate in postmenopausal women. The current study randomized 90 patients within four weeks after they received their kidney transplant, and they were randomized to receive denosumab, which was a subcutaneous injection of 60 milligrams, given at baseline at the time of randomization, and the second dose was given six months later, or the second arm was no treatment. However, all these patients received vitamin D and calcium supplements. So authors were looking for an increase in the percentage change in bone mineral density in the lumbar spine area as measured by the DEXA scan at 12 months. So as expected, the bone mineral density significantly improved in the denosumab group, not only in the lumbar area, but also at the hip, the distal tibia, and the radius. In addition, changes in markers of bone turnover were significantly lower in the denosumab group. The one thing I will say is there was no difference in a clinical endpoint such as fracture. Perhaps a longer study might be interesting. So if you look at the earlier comment that I made, the fracture is over a period of time in kidney transplant recipients over a five-year period or so. So this study only was conducted for a period of one year so perhaps a longer study might be interesting. However, there was actually one very unexpected finding with the study. The episodes of cystitis, that is infection um, of the urinary tract and the bladder, was much more in the denosumab group. And it was actually not very clear as to why this happened. So this actually remains to be seen. I think the drug is promising in this group of patients, and also the fact that uh, you can just give it uh, once every six months. Perhaps longer and uh, more studies might be needed in the future to look at this very problem. So, Linda, that was my take on the study. So, I'm interested to hear what you thought about it. So, from a purely research perspective, I'm always struck by the question, do you treat everyone to prevent a problem in a few, or do you try to do goal-directed therapy? And, I, you know, while it's not as cost-effective to treat everyone, I think that we might be stuck in a place where it's tough to predict who is really going to go on to get problems. So, you know, I, I find it very encouraging, the efficacy that was obtained here. And I think our step in translating this to how it should affect clinical practice might be to really look at, you know, who is going to get maximal benefit. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I, mean, I think, you know, that's uh, perfect because we also need to make sure that we treat the right patient with the right therapy so that we'll get the maximal benefit. So that actually always has been uh, my philosophy. But to get there, you know, we, we need to do more research. Um, again, at, at the end of the day, we're looking for uh, individualized care for these patients. 
So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that with the way things are going in medical research, that we will get there sooner rather than later. And I hope that we will continue the robust research that we're all excited about. I agree. We really should feel good as a community that we've made that transition into embracing this kind of clinical research. And I think our next step is to pattern ourselves after the oncologist to try to make it a part of almost every clinical practice. And that's something that I think that we can only do by pulling together as a renal community. Agreed. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology. Thank you.